My name is Carla, and this is the podcast. Hey everybody and welcome back to the podcast. We'll be taking a journey through some of Victoria's greatest war stories from the police veterans who live them and those who support them. This episode contains content that may be distressing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take care. Okay, um, afternoon, Neil, and welcome to the space, the podcast space. Excellent. Thanks for having me here. You're welcome. Uh, I finally got you. Uh, yeah, there have been a couple of uh, uh, false starts to this, but um, uh, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we made it. Like any of the podcasts, I want to go back in time a little bit. If we go back to 1988, that's when you joined the police force. Could you run me through kind of what the scene was like at the time and what compelled you to join? I'll start with what compelled me to join. I'd had I'd finished um, HSC and needed a break, and um, um, I'd got into university but deferred. And so I worked for a company that my father worked for at that time. And during that period of time, some of my priorities focused. I was really looking for a different challenge than going to university at that time, and policing was one of those um, exciting challenges. I lived in the outer eastern suburbs it was kind of the in the upper Yarra Valley so it was kind of very rural back then and I knew the local coppers really well they were people I got on with and it was like I think this is something that I want to do. Uh, 1988 obviously is uh, quite a while ago now but um, you know I I went into the police academy in the January I I graduated in the May and my first training station was Ngunnawadding in the eastern suburbs and you know I'm one of those that I probably feel very lucky in that I've enjoyed just about everywhere I've worked and it was a much simpler time than what we are in now in terms of the way you police uh, who you knew were the offenders committing crimes in your area and um, it it was just much simpler is is probably the best way I'd describe it. Mm. And I understand when you were seconded to Task Force Begonia you were investigating complex fraud so what were some of the learnings from deep diving into something like that? Yeah, that was an interesting period of time. I was a constable at Collingwood at the time, but I'd, um, I'd been, you know, really trying to, you know, get, as was required back then, enough briefs of evidence to show that you were really looking for a, a career as a detective. And during that phase, I was asked to come on board with um, that task force, which was looking into a complex fraud that had occurred and was ongoing within the Salvation Army uh, in Victoria. So it was kind of an unusual one. Mm. Um, And there was uh, about four of us that came on board for that that task force and it saw us um, travel actually around Australia to a couple of locations in terms of searching for records and getting access to documents to uncover the complexity of the fraud that had occurred by an active um, Salvation Army officer against their organisation. Um, so I think there's a couple of things that come out of me for those sorts of things is, um, you know, financial records are key to proving certain things. So even back then, 
Um, things weren't done as electronic as they are today, but we had to find hard copy banking records and records from this particular individual, which we found in storage sheds interstate. Um, and I guess the other thing that really strikes me about around financial crime is that greed can affect anyone. Here we had a um, uh, someone that was a or purported to be quite a religious person, certainly from a religious organisation. Um, a, a religious organisation that in some ways is known for their frugality is, you know, in terms of they're, they're out there to help community and they don't live excessive lives or anything like that. Whereas this chap was um, clearly driven by the greed and, uh, and the wealth that he had been able to amass by committing fraud against the Salvation Army. Mm. So greed can affect anyone no matter what your walk of life is. Mm. God, that's ironic. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. But, um, yeah. Wow, wow. Um, I have heard that the Sunshine CIB was kind of one of the, the busiest in the state in about 1994. So you're a detective senior constable there. I'm kind of just making up your history for you. I'm like, you did this and then you did that. But I know you were there. So what kind of crimes were being brought to you back then? So Sunshine in the mid-1990s was a really interesting um, part of Melbourne. Um, you know, if I look back at the time, there was the normal crimes that you'd normally get at any location, so house break-ins and, you know, assaults and um, robberies and, and things like that. There was a really high prevalence of drug use in the Sunshine community at that particular time, and the predominant drug back then in the 90s was heroin, and um, it was... Uh, very easy to leave the CI offices and go and speak to a few people uh, down in the main streets of Sunshine and you could pick up someone with a possession for, for drugs quite easily. Uh, uh, you know, it then caused crime in the area as well. Uh, so, you know, crime was rife, um, um, street crime. And whilst there, um, I had the unfortunate uh, opportunity to be involved in a number of homicide investigations. So we had seen a number of very violent crimes, often associated with drunks where um, someone had lost their life. And, you know, as a, as a local suburban detective, you know, the homicide squad came in and I had the opportunity to work very closely alongside uh, detectives from uh, the homicide squad and really learn um, about some of the much more complex uh, 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 briefs of evidence and, you know, had the opportunity to go in on short comments relating to particular homicides, um, and that was a really good opportunity. But it was a very busy CI, just everything, every sort of um, offender walked through our doors. Um, again, you know, complex frauds were on the books out there. I remember doing a couple of very big fraud cases. Um, you know, as I've said, a couple of homicide cases. There was many um, sex crimes as well. So it was a way of, you know, there was quite a CIs in the state at that time. And indeed, when I got my detective position, I, you know, you, you apply for various positions. And I remember being rung up by, um, I mean, we, we call it transfer and promotion unit now, I don't even know what it was called back then. And they mm. said, okay, you've been selected for three detective vacancies. It's these three vacancies, which one do you want? And I went, okay, um, I'm gonna take Sunshine CI because I knew it would be a busy area and you would give me a, a really good grounding as a detective in very broad crime issues. Was that, uh were you offered metro and rural? Or? Uh, no, there was um, there was two metro s suburban CIs and there was uh, a squad that right. I'd, I'd been offered. So you were actually applied for particular positions out of every gazette and I'd applied for a whole, whole lot mm. and interviewed and then out of that one gazette I got 
three people, you know, the, the transfer and promotion person said, you know, you've actually been first for three jobs, so you get to choose which one you want to go to. Mm. Um, and my choice was to go Sunshine. I hadn't worked out uh, the western suburbs at that stage of my career. Um, that was partly attractive, and I knew it was a busy CI by reputation. It was like, yeah, this is something I want to do. I want to go out and um, really get a good grounding in all aspects of investigation as a detective and uh, just love my time out there. Mm. And can you tell me what followed after Sunshine? Because I actually don't know this about your history, but I'm there's a gap, obviously, well, not a gap, but there's a space where you went from being on the beat to coming into corporate. So what kind of led you up to this point now? Oh, God, how long have we got? <laughs> um, so, well, I mean, there's been many locations since then. So after I left Sunshine, I went to the Homicide Squad as a detective in the Missing Persons Unit. We did uh, complex missing persons cases and charged uh, a number of people with homicide. Um, from there, I became a sergeant at St Kilda. Um, from St Kilda, I moved to the country and uh, became mm-hmm. the sergeant officer in charge of a small police station in Gippsland called Neerham South. That would have been a change. <laughs> um, it was great change, though. Um, yeah, it was really good fun. And then a couple of years after that, came back into the crime department as it was then as a detective sergeant in, in the arson squad. Um, after that, in, um, in about 2003-04, I be, took promotion to a senior sergeant at the Commonwealth Games Planning Unit. Mm. Um, and that was for the 2006 Commonwealth Games. So in preparation for the Com Games, we did the planning and security overlay for the Commonwealth Youth Games uh, in 2004 and obviously delivered the security overlay for the Commonwealth Games in 2006 which at that stage in my career you know we were told this is a once-off sort of thing in your policing career you'll never see the Commonwealth Games again in your career and of course now we've got them again in um, 2026 <laughs> um, just a couple of years away again now so um yeah. Um, whilst I won't be involved in the in the next lot, um, <laughs> I will get to see two Commonwealth Games in Victoria, which is uh, quite exciting. Yeah, yeah. And then after after Com Games, um, I uh, took promotion as an inspector to our legal policy unit at that stage. Moved out to a um, PSA as a LAC down in Kingston. Um, uh, I'm just trying to think. I think I, um, not long after that, I got promoted to a superintendent's position at. What was then the traffic camera office became the road policing enforcement division, then went into our state intelligence division and um, underdid quite a reform of what the state intelligence division was about and some of the work they did um, really built up the sex offender registry that was um, relatively new at that period of time. Um, and you know we delivered the what what is now called the Victoria Police Intelligence Doctrine and a number of significant pieces. Um, to the intelligence puzzle uh, over that period of time. Post that, I went down to Frankston as the superintendent down in Southern Division 4, which was a lot of fun looking after Frankston in the morning to Peninsula. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, no matter where you're heading in, in your career as a police officer, some of the most fun times are when you're back engaged with um, people that are delivering the frontline service uh, to the community out there because whilst you might not be on the van or the car out there delivering the services, as you move up the ranks, it's probably as close as you're going to get to it and it's it's really good to stay engaged with exactly what's happening out on the front line um, mm. as well, so I've enjoyed that. Um, after being a super, I uh, down at Frankston, I did some upgrading um, 
uh, as acting commander in Southern Metro Region and then Graham Ashton came back as uh, Chief Commissioner and he asked me to come in and be his Chief of Staff. Mm. So I uh, uh, jumped back in um, and was Graham's Chief of Staff for uh, a while, um, subsequently took promotion to Assistant Commissioner at our Intel and Covert Support Command and then uh, two and a half years ago uh, uh, got the current position which is uh, that I hold, which is Deputy Commissioner's Capability in, in Victoria Police. Mm. Yeah, that was a long history. Sorry, I know <laughs> no. There, there's no short way to do that. Um, so I could skip some things, but you know, the, I have been in different areas. Your resume must be like three pages long. Uh, well, um, thank goodness I don't have to look at it. But um, yeah. I, you know, as I said before, I'm, I, I just feel like I'm one of these lucky individuals that um, yeah, you can have a bad day wherever you work, but the places that I've worked across this organisation over the years, I've actually really loved. There's some. Um, absolutely outstanding people and you get to work alongside them and with them and you can make a difference and so um, mm. of very many different locations there but love them all. Mm. Yeah even just working in this building itself with everyone here it's it's such an amazing place to work. Well it's quite a social uh, occasion it I know is. we're a big tall building but you, you know on level seven which is the town centre you've got the yeah. gardens and you get to see people or in the yeah. level 27 meeting rooms you'd be going somewhere and mm -hmm. it's great to run into colleagues that you've known uh, for what it feels like forever or some newer colleagues that you may have met and uh, just uh, mix across the organisation it's a good feeling. Mm. Yeah I bump into Shane Patton like once a week <laughs> like literally bump into him. Well I hope you say sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about something a little bit different. This happened a little while ago, something that we covered, given kind of the subject matter that we cover at PBB. But you have spoken about the, the suicide prevention campaign for uh, Constable Laurie Fox, and that was uh, run on Channel 9. So at, at the time, what did that, what kind of response did that garner? Because the deepfake technology that Vic Pohl used was quite not uncommon at the time. Actually, it was a little bit uncommon. And... His, his family and his friends, what sort of, or even the response from the public, what did you get? So um, I'll start by saying that when, when anyone talks about suicide, it's a difficult topic to talk about. But often we shy away from the difficult topics like suicide, which means for me that you uh, send the message out to others that might be experiencing poor mental health is that we're not prepared to talk about suicide. Um, so in terms of a suicide prevention campaign, which is what, um, what this was, was we were trying to open up the conversation around suicide in a way that would resonate with our workforce. Um, in recreating Laurie's voice um, using deepfake technology was always going to be controversial. Because there's going to be, it's going to raise um, various issues for, for various people. Of course, we only ever did that with Laurie's um, partner's, um, surviving partner's permission. And she and Laurie's boys were engaged in the whole process from start to finish. Um, across the organisation, it had a significant impact in terms of, uh, um, I got many emails about it in terms of people's um, thanks for actually starting something that was a conversation around something that's generally been taboo 
and, of, and for people that knew Laurie in the organisation and that were his friends and colleagues, we'd already done quite a bit of work to engage them well prior to the suicide prevention campaign running both within the organisation or on the, on the news as it did to feature it. Um, but also there was people that didn't like it because it felt like that um, you know, we were manufacturing something, putting words into Laurie's mouth post, um, uh, post his passing. Well, of course, that's exactly right. But, um, you know, I think one of the strongest messages out of any suicide prevention campaign, and it comes strongly through with Laurie's words, is um, suicide is a permanent um, solution to a temporary problem. Um, suicide happens when people are in mental health crisis and can't see the clear way out. There is generally almost always a clear way out if you are prepared to have a conversation and re reach out to someone who cares for you. Now that can be a family member, a friend, a colleague or a professional and they can help you find that way out rather than um, implementing a permanent solution. Now I've had so much, um, so many people come from the international policing community to me and ask about that campaign. The campaign itself is finished but the, the video still exists of, of what we did there um, because other policing jurisdictions are really looking about okay, what, how can we make a difference to the suicides that happen in their organisation. It's not something that's confined to Victoria Police. Indeed, it's not something that's confined to policing, but certainly policing has its fair share. And it was never about shock and awe, but it was about looking at a way to engage our workforce and say, we're prepared to have a conversation. Um, as part of that campaign, but not directly to do with Laurie, we also changed the way we communicated in the organisation when someone did take their own life. You know, traditionally, police... Um, attend the scene of death when someone does take their own life. We have a role that we play on behalf of the coroner. We complete reports and um, it goes through to the coroner's court. Um, but internally we communicate across the organisation when a colleague does die and we have traditionally said something along the lines of, you know, whoever um, um, has died um, suddenly and unexpectedly um, you know, and you know, there'll be some information there and then it will say down the bottom for support, please contact police psychology unit and you know, the, the senior sergeant from wherever is the person to contact. What that means when you put out that sort of messaging, everyone goes, oh, I know, okay, they've taken their own life. But by not being able to say that in the email, again, I think we're really pushing out the fact that we're not prepared to have a conversation around um, serious mental health issues and the thoughts of suicide. So uh, around the same time, we changed our internal policies that where it was absolutely clear that an employee had taken their own life, we would say that in our communication to the organisation. Mm. Um, not where it's not clear. So where it's not clear, we're not going to say they took their own life. But where it's absolutely clear that that's what's happened, I think we have an op uh, um, uh, you know, a responsibility to our organisation to be open and transparent and show that we are prepared to have a conversation around suicide and mental health and also that there's options and support that we can provide people because most people through a lifetime will experience a period of poor mental health.
Um, and there is a way back from poor mental health to good mental health. So we need to show those options and really support our workforce who do a very difficult role um, out in community, keeping the community safe so that when they hit a hurdle around poor mental health, that we're there to support them and help them back. Mm. Yeah, rather than shying away from talking about it. Well, you know, as I say, suicide's the big taboo. You know, um, we think that if we talk about it, then people are going to copycat and um, also take their own life. Well, the research doesn't show that. Mm. Um, There has been lots of research around that over the years, and there is some research that may indicate that copycat may occur in younger people, so teenagers, etc. But in adult populations, that's not evidenced in the research that... uh, just because of someone else talking about it would Mm. make them copycat. So I think it's much more important to be having open conversations that show our people that we're prepared to listen and it's not a taboo subject. You can talk to us about that. Mm. There is support and we've now evidenced that even people that have experienced quite acute mental health crisis, that there's a pathway back Mm. on many occasions, back into the organisation where they can contribute in an ongoing way. Yeah, and I think if someone truly wanted to do it, they would be doing it anyway. I don't think you would need a prompt from someone just talking about it for you to go, oh, maybe maybe that's what I'll do. Yeah, it's a really complex issue. There's no, um, there's no one answer in terms of, uh, you know, would, would have someone have done it um, mm. themselves anyway or not? But, you, you know, I think you are right in that people that have reached a point where they've made a decision because of poor mental health... Um, May, may do that anyway. Mm. I don't think talk us talking about it and being much more transparent as an organisation encourages anyone to take their own life. Mm. The research shows that's not the case. What it does do is, in some ways, normalise the conversation and show to an employee that they can talk about it and that we're prepared to have that conversation and listen, help and support them. Mm. Now, um, you've been a very active contributor to our police veteran community for quite a long time, and you've had a very important voice for us. Um, over your time kind of in general policing now as Deputy Commissioner, have you seen a shift in how we approach mental health, including everything we were talking about with, with suicide and you know the way we approach it? How, what's it been like witnessing that shift? Um, there has been a shift. So I hold the um, um, executive sponsorship over mental health in the organisation, the role of executive sponsor, uh, you know, making sure we get it right as far as possible for all of our employees is important. We've already gone through a lot of changes in organisation around, um, you know, we did a mental health review and, you know, um, had recommendations from that of which we implemented. We're just um, uh, putting together a new mental health strategy and action plan. This is a lifelong learning process for organisations like policing. I think we're heading in the right direction. Indeed, I think we're ahead of most other police jurisdictions, not only in Australia and in the world, in some of the work that we're doing. The work we do in the Blue Hub um, space with between uh, Police Association, uh, AFP and VicPol has been hugely successful in getting really good support um, to police suffering from acute mental health crisis. Uh, and there's broader work that we're just embarking on as an organisation to really up the ante 
on the mental health support that we're going to move much closer to the front line over the over the next two years to really try and make a difference to the members of Victoria Police who experience poor mental health. Mm. In terms of the veteran community, though, um, you know, there's this saying that says there's nothing more X than an X um, in terms of a police officer. So once you leave, almost everyone forgets about you. Well, I don't think that's quite right, but I certainly understand why people feel that way from time to time. Police tip so much of themselves into their career when they're in Victoria Police. It becomes part of your identity of who you are. But for whatever reason, um, whether it's retirement or a new career opportunity or indeed um, ill health retirement or you know experiencing poor mental health, people leave at various stages through their career. And I think why I like the work of Police Veterans Victoria is it now plays a, such a cu crucial part in reconnecting some of those members and telling them that there is continuing support out there for them because just because you've finished up your career with Victoria Police does not mean that you haven't seen and heard and experienced some very difficult things through your career that you may still need to talk about and get support about and there's nothing better than support by someone that could understand your experience. Mm. So when that support's offered by uh, other police veterans who get training in terms of how you can support someone, um, but firstly that feels safe to, mm. uh, to a veteran to be talking to someone that they know understands them. Um, and you know, it's about giving them the opportunity to be heard by someone that does care. And so I think, you know, the work of PVV here is groundbreaking. Um, you know, I'd love to see it uh, grow bigger in terms of not just Victoria but other states. Um, it's in I, the works. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, I've certainly spoken to David about this. It's yeah. you know. It, we do it well or we do it better for our defence community in terms of veteran support. You know, uh, it's often, you know, I don't have data to support this, but it's often said now that in the absence of an ongoing conflict and war that Australian soldiers may be involved in, the day-to-day -day trauma that a police officer sees from everything from, um, you know, dreadful road accidents to uh, various crime scenes and the experiences that they deal with, uh, can be much more traumatic than uh, a person who has a career in defence. Mm. And all that's defined as moral injury as well. Police officers experience so much moral injury in their time. And I Absolutely. Mean, and everything you were just saying is actually backed by genuine research, um, including so moral injury and the role of peer support. Um, we were just published in the Police Journal about peer support, and um, Dave McGowan and Rebecca Lynch from PVV had both written about it. So... Everything you were just saying and everything we're about is actually backed by research yep. and it's all genuine. Yeah, and um, moral injury probably isn't something that's well understood by many people and what it means and how it can affect people. You know, we, we reasonably well understand the language of PTS mm. um, with or without the, the D because I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm conscious that some people um, don't like um, the disorder word, um, no matter which way you look at it, PTS, I think we really quite understand. But trauma, which is like PTS, happens out of moral injury or something that's often in the in the clinical world is referred to as post-embitterment stress disorder. Mm. And whilst not um, 
PESD, whilst whilst it's not uh, on the books as a uh, recognised disorder at the moment, my feeling is that over the coming a number of years it will be, and that's about this moral injury and the trauma that it causes, which is almost identical as PTS, um, has no less effect. It has as as great a um, trauma effect on individuals, and it's understanding. Okay, how can we prevent that compared mm. to uh, post-traumatic stress? Because I think there is a slightly different approach to the moral injury process about how we treat everyone with respect and dignity through their career. Conflict can happen in workplaces or areas, etc. And it's about saying we've got to step up. We've got to find ways to manage our way through those difficult periods where everyone still goes I might not be happy with the outcome but I felt like I was heard I felt like I was valued um, and I want to continue my career we haven't traditionally handed some of those much more complex people problem wells that problems well which Mm. then can lead into the territory of moral injury for a variety of reasons Mm. and I think once we do more research we'll come to understand yeah things like moral injury injury much better and we can address them appropriately I did want to ask you as well you've been um, very vocal about LGBTQI plus issues before so how do you think we might be able to better support police veterans in um, this community so how can we kind of create an inclusive and diverse space yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, so um, I'm, I'm an out gay man. I've been out for very many years in Victoria Police, back um, when it was actually quite difficult to be an out um, uh, person in, in Victoria Police. Uh, so it's actually only in more recent years that Victoria Police has created a, an employee network, which is the VP Pride Network. And what we see there is that um, uh, you know members of the LGBTI community are, are coming together to work out, well, how can we make Victoria better in terms of diversity and inclusion? Mm. Just as we're seeing a number of other employee groups, whether it's the African Employee Network, the Aboriginal Employee Network, the Called Network, or you know, a variety of networks of going, how can we make Victoria Police a better organisation? Mm. In terms of the veteran community... Um, you know, I don't probably have a neat solution, but you mm, know, neither I'm, do we. That's why I asked. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. But um, of course, you know, if you if you're going to have LGBTIQ officers through an organisation, they will retire and leave the organisation exactly. as well. Yeah. Um, and I think there is an opportunity, perhaps under under the PVV banner, that you can have subparts of PVV, where mm. you know, if you identify people that. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 out in terms of being a member of the LGBTIQ community, you can actually probably connect them up as part of a support, a peer support program as well. Mm. Um, what I would say is that people that are veteran police officers will probably even more so feel uh, an unease at coming out as an LGBT member of the LGBTIQ community, probably because of their past involvement and history in Victoria Police. We haven't always um, embraced uh, members of the LGBTIQ in this organisation. Um, I think we've got a hell of a lot better. Are we perfect? No, but we're a hell of a lot better because when I speak to younger members in the organisation that do identify as LGBTIQ, they mostly tell me you know, that four or five years into the job that they've never had an issue. And I think, wow, we are coming a long way. And that's Mm. partly generational change that you would expect to see in in an organisation. We still have our problems. We will have our problems on many different um, issues related to uh, diversity and inclusion. But holistically as an organisation, we've got a lot better. 
And what I would say to our veteran community, if you're part of the uh, veteran LGBTIQ community, is Victoria Police has got a lot better. You should um, gain confidence that even amongst your veteran colleagues that uh, opinions have changed and you would most likely find welcome arms to talk about any issue, uh, whether it's an LGBTIQ issue or just a broader issue as a, as a police veteran. You will find people that understand. You know, I've, I've got colleagues that were very senior in the organisation when I was very junior and have since that are now part of the veteran community and had very fixed views on their acceptance of homosexuality, which wasn't acceptance. But, um, you know, I still engage. Uh, you know, I've got one particular person in mind, I'm not going to name them, who would say that uh, interaction with myself and my partner really changed their views on homosexuality and indeed then allowed them to have a much better relationship with one of their children who identified as LGBTIQ because it's often the fear of the unknown we just we might have been taught or um, instructed a certain way with school or you know our parents about ways that were right and wrong and we've just you know got a little bit of ignorance around some of these issues so once you open up your mind prepared to learn prepared to treat every person you come across with dignity and respect, I think that's a game changer. And, you know, as I say, if there's members of the veteran community that um, aren't feeling that love, I think, you know, um, the love is there, even amongst the veteran community. I don't think you'd find very many people um, Mm. in this day and age that would would have an issue. Yeah, and I think we as an organisation have a long way to go as well. Um, Yeah, we do. Uh, We're in a good good position, you know. But you never stop learning, and yeah. you never stop improving. Whether it's uh, uh, whether it's any aspect of diversity and inclusion, mm. um, LGBTIQ space, we know we've made some really hard yards, but there's always more work to do. Mm. Because I think with our organisation, a lot of what we're doing is trying to help people feel validated in whatever it is that they're feeling, and that can only extend over to, of course, you're valid if you're also in that community as well, no matter how you know. How many people are in that community we actually don't know um, we've never really looked into in terms of our member base we've got over 4500 we don't know kind of who identifies with what in our community but it's something we're working on for sure yeah well we don't know who identifies as what in victoria police either we mm. can it is a voluntary system in hr assist our hr systems to identify um, in terms of sexuality, so you can go in and list that if you so, cho- so choose. But a lot of people mm. don't for a lot of reasons, and many yeah, people course, do. Yeah. Um, so you don't ever have a 100% um, mm. knowledge of, of what the makeup of the organisation is. But what I do see in terms of our employee network, networks on any of the aspects of diversity is that they're quite, um, quite vibrant groups now mm. and each of them see a purpose for existence um, not only from from a term of peer support for their for their colleagues but that they can actually make a difference for the whole of Victoria Police and make us a better organisation and I think that's crucial. Mm. How, how do you think we could better support the mental health of police veterans and do you think there is enough support for police veterans as of right now? Uh, no, of course not. Um, you know, we're on a journey. PVV is only relatively new um, in, in mm. terms of an organisation and they're doing something that is absolutely crucial. Indeed, you kind of sit here today in 2022 and you, you kind of go, how did this organisation or how did the need for this organisation not be identified 20, 30 years ago and start up back then? 
So um, you can't fix everything overnight, but there's mm. much more support that organisations like PVV need. You know, um, we've, you know, I know that um, uh, many members of Victoria Police now contribute yeah, fortnightly from their salaries to mm. um, a, a small amount of money to add to the success of PVV, and I think that's essential. Mm. You know, we've been doing that for Police Legacy, another organisation that provides a very um, important uh, purpose, but, you know, that we can do that for PVV is equally as important. But, you know, organisations like PVV also need to look for more more uh, sustainable funding as well and there's you know various opportunities out there around that and it'd be lovely to see um, some permanent funding come the way of PVV given the the work that uh, the good work that they're doing and uh, how much more is required mm. well I mean I'm sure you would be aware of our struggles at the moment having had government funding kind of promised and then backpedaled on we got a letter from the police minister's office uh, saying that there was money going towards um, serving in veteran police through various programs, things like Blue Hub, um, which is obviously a fantastic initiative, but it's for current serving members only. So do you think the fact that most people think Blue Hub is something veterans can access is detrimental to our, our organisation? Um, well, I'm not so sure whether it's detrimental to the veteran community, but um, the Blue Hub program is very successful but it can't even meet the needs of the current, current serving, serving yeah. members. So, you know, if we looked at waiting periods to get into the Blue Hub program, which have significantly improved since we're kind of out of the main part of COVID, um, there's still so many more current members that we would like to stream into the Blue Hub program because it's so successful. Mm. Um, there's a shortage of clinicians across community in general. You know, if yeah. you were just um, any person in the community looking to engage with a psychologist you'll probably have quite a, a long, long wait time. time yeah so you know given that there's a shortage of practitioners generally it's kind of got, it's not just a Victoria police issue it's not just a government issue it's not just a blue hub issue mm. there's issues here that will take many years to solve in terms of people going through um, university and graduating as psychologists and getting experience and, and going on there um, and, you know, it would be great to see the same levels of support as we've been able to generate with Blue Hub mm. happening for the veteran police community as well because there's no shadow of a doubt that there's many people as part of the veteran community that do have acute mental health crisis from time to time or just generally poor mental health that would benefit from the, the, those sorts of programs. Mm. The, you know, the key part, I think, of why Blue Hub has been so successful is that the clinicians that work in that program are trained up on police culture um, and what policing is all about. So it's not like just walking in the door to any psychologist who mm. um, may have some knowledge of policing or may have their own prejudices and bias. Sure. The, the psychologists that work in our program um, are asked to work in the program and then complete three training um, requirements to participate in that, all based on police culture, which is crucial for them to understand officers that they're dealing with. Mm. Well, and kind of based on what you were saying before, what we would like to see is the same level of funding support given to defence veterans. What do you kind of think about the comparison between how much defence veterans are getting versus how much we're getting, which is currently nothing? Yeah, so, you know, as I said earlier on, um, 
there's clear evidence to show that the trauma that police get to see daily, weekly, yearly is you know, in excess of generally what the um, defence community is seeing now other than in active times of war. Um, given that situation, I think there's a, there's a significant, there is significant evidence that we're not supporting the, the, the community as we should, um, as, a, as a broad community. Funding is going to be an important part of that. Um, so, you know, uh, I would hope that um, in time funding does flow because this problem isn't going away. The, mm. veter the veteran community only grows. So, you know, um, we'll, every day we have officers retire from Victoria Police for a variety of reasons um, and they become part of the broader veteran community. Mm. To think that their support for their mental health stops on the day of their retirement or resignation from the organisation um, uh, concerns me because mm. they will have all experienced a variety of trauma based on their policing careers. And what's interesting as well is you don't need to go to therapy or counselling or get a psychologist if you are, um, like you were saying, experiencing poor mental health. You could just go to have a chat. Absolutely, and that's why peer, peer support style programs are so important in mm. both the work setting and in you know, like the veteran setting because just being able to talk and open up shares a problem and therefore halves a problem often. Mm. So um, the opportunity to talk to someone that's genuinely there to listen is a crucial thing without being clinical support. It's mm. a crucial thing as well. Mm -hmm. As in, we know other things are really successful in helping with poor mental health. One of that is, is um, um, doing physical exercise. We know that if you engage in physical exercise, that can help endorphins and, mm. uh, in, in the brain and, and lift your mood and things like that. I'm not saying that anyone that's a panacea, but there's a number of things that we know can improve mental health. And talking, having someone to listen to you, having someone to support you is also one of those clear things that do help people as well. Mm. And I'd say that comes under, you know, the holistic approach to mental health, which is it's not just the counselling and the psychology and certain medications, which all have their value. It's, again, things like exercise or even support animals, which is something that we are trying to become a part of. Um, we know just based off anecdotal evidence from the amount of veterans that we've seen with support animals, how important they are and the the bond that's created between a veteran and their their animal we would love to you know if we had the funding we would love to make something like that happen um yeah it's a, it's amazing that the change that a support dog can make in someone's life i've seen it so so many times and mm. indeed i caught up with a veteran uh, yesterday and his dog lucy who's just beautiful mm. and um um it'd be great to be able to provide those services more broadly mm. again you know that's a, something that's about funding and money because they are it yes, is a, it's quite yeah. an expense um in, mm. in terms of that but the the effect on an individual mm. um can be life-changing yeah when the cost as well um i mean this is something that um pat daly and i were talking about um the cost if you compare it to uh obviously this the cost of um training the animal and food and everything that you know comes about with having an animal but if you would compare it to how many times that they kept someone out of hospital uh in some people's cases that's like 10 or 11 times 
surely you would be able to, you know, make a cost comparison of this is like a one-time kind of cost or a small ongoing cost versus thousands and thousands of dollars for hospital visits and putting, you know, more strain on the medical system. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Um, you know, um, as I say, I'm a big, strong supporter of um, mm. um, support animals and I've seen them change people's lives where, you know, those individuals tell me that without the without the dog, I'm mm. primarily talking about dogs, that they wouldn't be here. Mm. Um, and I think that speaks volumes that, you know, they're not, they're not what everyone needs, but for some people experiencing acute mental health illness, they can change lives and um, they are a, a very important part of the solution, I think. Mm. Yeah, we've even, uh, we've even seen this with horses. Um, we had someone come and show us like a short film that they made about it and uh, there was one police veteran that was involved in it that had gone to, um, I think it was the Blue Mountains. And yeah, they've done the, they've taken the same concept as dogs, but done it with horses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, so, so people that know they suffer from anxiety or, you know, panic attacks, you know, um, speaking to people that have support dogs, you know, the dogs are, are often trained to pick up the signs that that might be happening. So the dog will get up closer or do something that can mm. um, uh, stop the increase in anxiety or the panic attack, etc., and really make a difference to the outcome for that individual. Mm. So I agree, they're, they're wonderful creatures. They're very special and um, it, you know, it'd be wonderful to see that as uh, part of the program in the future. Mm. And yes, there's, um, there's a cost saving um, you know, potentially by keeping people out of the, the, uh, the general medical system. Um, mm. But, yeah, you know, they're, 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 they're complex issues that need to be worked through. Mm. How do you think we might be able to make the transition from being in the job, um, coming out of the job as positive as possible? Because um, I remember you mentioned at our peer training quite a while ago, uh, you're implementing like a send-off day. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so certainly at certain levels of um, time in the organisation, we do, uh, you know, um, send-offs. So for instance, um, um, if you're doing uh, uh, 40 or more years in the organisation um, as a deputy, you know, you'll get a personal invitation to bring your family in and have a morning or afternoon tea um, and with me and um, that if you're in my portfolio in the organisation, but the relevant deputies um, do this, and an opportunity to uh, recognise your career. It doesn't take the place of a send-off from your work location, work mm. unit or wherever. That'll happen anyway. It's about that recognition of really long service. And for below below uh, 40 years, there, you know, we, we make sure that the assistant commissioner over a relevant area offers that same opportunity to the, to the employee so that particularly for long-serving me members, we're recognising their length of career, the contribution they're made. Because um, it's this strange thing is that, you know, we work our whole entire lives for community, but um, community would, I know, want to say huge thank yous to individuals who, you know, do so much service. But of course, they don't get that opportunity to, you don't get, you know, tap on the door with the whole community um, behind you saying thank you. So mm. it's part of um, you know, us as an organisation saying we know the community value, your individual contribution to the whole safety of the Victorian community over 45 years, that's one I've done recently, because that's just an amazing contribution when you think of it. 45 years or mm. more in this organisation is, is just a, an incredible 
contribution to the broader Victorian community and it's one of those things which I think is very special to recognise those sorts of lengths of service. Mm. Even just the commitment of going to the same workplace every day is massive. Uh, absolutely, particularly in a, in a COVID area where yeah. um, most other interest, industries are able to work from home in some way and um, you know, it's very hard to work the van from home and provide a service. So, you know, uh, uh, you know, even over the last two years, our members and some of them will have been retiring or, or resigning in more recent times have done an amazing job under, you know, untold um, circumstances that we've found ourselves in during a pandemic. Mm. So as a final question, this is just more of a personal thing. Um, what's next in your story? My story, well, um, I love my role in Victoria Police um, and I think, you know, you know, why would I ever want to be an Assistant Commissioner? Why would I ever want to be a Deputy Commissioner? It's about the opportunity to change the organisation for the better and um, really make a difference for the members and staff that work in this organisation. Often as you go through your career, there's things that you identify that you go, we really should change that. But when you're at that level, you really have no opportunity to change or make that level of difference. For me it's about um, continuing to do the same and more and looking for opportunities to make this a better workforce, a better job, some more support for our people, particularly mental health support and getting those things right. I've got heaps more to do so it's not like I'm going to be out of a job anytime <laughs> soon. And you know n number one always to me is my family so you know I always commit um, to, to the family and the kids. We've still got young kids in primary school so um, uh, you know, they take up a lot of time as they should um, because mm. they only stay young for such a short period of time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've found that out with our older girls that, you know, they're both off overseas at the moment, but our younger ones are still home. And that's uh, because you only have them for such time. Spending time with children is also one of my top priorities. Mm, absolutely. Well, it's been very informative. Thank you for coming down and taking the time to, to chat with me. This has been wonderful. No, no, thank you. Um, veteran community is really important to me. I hope they understand that. And, um, you know, whenever I get the opportunity, I do try and uh, come to veteran events and have a chat and, and talk because we've still got so much we can learn from the veteran community about mm. their experience. We've got support to offer. Certainly PVV is, um, is doing amazing work and we as an organisation need to support PVV in their endeavours as well. And certainly with Shane, the chief on board as a patron, I think that um, shows significant support and mm. I know it's something we talk around the executive table on is you know that support and continuing support for PVE and the great work you're doing. Mm. Well, we can't wait to see you at the next event. Absolutely. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you enjoyed the episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media or leave us a rating and review. To catch all the latest from us, you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Police Veterans Victoria or head over to our website www.policeveteransvic.org.au. Thanks again and we'll see you next time.